Welcome to the second of our monthly roundup episodes where Hector and I take a look back at the last month's Riding Unicorns episodes and dive into a few topics that have come up in our working lives. So we had Jean Name from Touch Surgery who exited to Medtronic. We had Eamon Carey from Techstars, Harry Franks, founder of Unicorn InsureTech, Zigo, and we also had James Hind, founder of Carwow. So Hector, which did you enjoy and which one stuck out to you? I love recording every episode and all of our guests, fantastic, um, of course. But actually, I, I, I think it was cool to have our first unicorn founder. Is that true or have we had other unicorn founders before? Well, it's kind of in the in the definition. So obviously, Samarza Sorrel S4 Capital is yes. a billion plus business. But I think this from a kind of pure tech startup yeah. angle, going through VC rounds rather than you know a direct listing. Yeah, Zigo is the first one where we've kind of spoken to a founder who's gone from like a small first round with a proper VC all the way up to unicorn status. So. Yeah, I think, I think that's the first one. Yeah, I, I think so. So if we if we accept that definition, then yeah, I, I think it was cool. It feels like it's one of the sort of poster children at the moment, one of the hot startups in the UK ecosystem. And so really cool to actually execute on the plan for riding unicorns in a way, like genuinely getting unicorns. And hopefully we're jumping on board a few companies pre-becoming a unicorn. So hopefully there'll be lots of unicorns in the riding unicorns portfolio before long. But no, I think speaking, so speaking to Harriet Zigo was great. And I think it was, it was good. I always like it when founders open up a bit and I felt Harry was great at that. And he talked a bit about his transition away from being CEO towards being, I think he's chief BD officer, business development officer now. So probably in charge of sort of new business. And I'm sure he does lots of strategic stuff as, as well. But I liked how he brought up how people asked him whether his pride and ego had taken a hit when he stepped down as CEO. And I think personally, that certainly is something I find interesting to hear about really getting under the skin of the founders. And I think it's probably also something our listeners really like hearing about. We should find a way to get that kind of stuff out of more of our guests. But yeah, that, that's just something that stood out from that particular episode. And the other companies and that obviously Eamon, it was great to talk to him about the future of accelerators and in the context of the seed stage, it was cool to hear his views on where Accelerator's value lies. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought we, we did actually get to know him and a bit more as well, the fact that he loves his cooking and the fact that he founded a Facebook gaming company and he's so into his music. Like, we got to know a bit more about him as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, and I've caught up with him since. And that, that's one of the beauties of writing unicorns, right? Of running a podcast is that you do meet people who you wouldn't necessarily normally come across or get the chance to speak to. Yeah. And then I also really enjoyed speaking to James at Carwell around all the challenges around hiring. He was just very honest and frank, just heart on sleeve, but without overdoing it. Yeah. These are the realities of running a company and you don't always get it right. And the key is to act swiftly and review and think, well, how did that happen? And then come back and improve the process. And yeah. No, I to- totally, totally agree. I think um, actually on the on the previous point, talking about you know the fact that it's fantastic being able to get through to these founders and amazing early employees of companies and VCs and talking to these people who we wouldn't normally speak to. 
in a way, if we could make our podcast feel like our listeners were talking to these people, then I think that's us doing our jobs. Yeah. So that's what's happened in riding unicorns. But in the world, we've we've had the Olympics on. Have you been watching much of that? I wish I'd been watching more. I I think the only Olympics that I watched loads of, I think, was in twenty twelve, and absolutely loved it. But I just haven't found time. And I've heard lots of people complaining about the BBC coverage of it, but. I'm in no place to complain because I haven't made use of even what coverage there is. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit difficult to navigate. You click on the red button, it will just give you like a two and a half hour block that you have to search through to find whatever you're after. But actually, I, I've watched a bit of it. I think it's always hard to know whether we're getting a good return on medals. Like yeah. you win a gold and you think, okay, that's great. But like we're not sort of top of the leaderboard by any means. And it sort of feels like you're not even really winning if you like there's no what's the point of coming like 16th but actually one of my one of my best friends his brother just won a bronze medal in the eight man rowing team so oh, wow. um ollie win griffith has just won that which is amazing and it's great to see his kind of dedication and uh discipline and focus pay off because it's been quite a long journey kind of yeah. probably almost 10 years of him like rowing at school and then going to college in the u.s and then getting into the GB team and then not knowing if he'll get into the eight boat and then getting in the eight boat and then getting yeah. a bronze. So that's been exciting. And there was one other thing that really stood out to me, which kind of links into the business world as well, which is that I heard that Michael Phelps, so he retired in 2016 with 23 gold medals and 29 individual world records and another 10 team world records. But on the individual ones, just five years later, only one world record remains, which is the 400 meter individual medley. And that just really stuck out to me as he's the fastest person in the water ever across these like 29 disciplines, but only five years later, people have already beaten them. And I think it just stands to like how quickly the world moves now. And that five years is it's a really short period for things to change, but a lot can change in that time. And I think that happens in our world as well. You know, five years ago, we were nowhere near 100 unicorns in the UK. We're now over that. And I think obviously in their world, it's sports science and nutrition and training and probably earlier specialization in sport as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas in our world, it's getting more and more competitive as well. Yes, there's more capital out there but the cream rises to the top and it's kind of access to information, access to talent, access to investors, advisors, et cetera, all at your fingertips. And so the, the bar has been raised, particularly for your first round or your series A, the yeah. bar is being raised. It's no longer necessarily even a million ARR at series A, it's one, two, two million. And that, that kind of needle is moving. And I thought it was really interesting. I wonder whether you sort of agree with that thesis that the world is just moving at such a speed and getting more and more competitive. Yeah, I think I do agree with that. I think access to information is a big one because with easier access to information, you are able to refine the playbook quicker. So perhaps fewer mistakes are being made in the startup ecosystem. We've seen more things that have worked really well now and we're probably able to replicate those things more easily on, on with new companies. I think it's a really interesting discussion. I'm almost certain plays into it is the human condition, which lots of entrepreneurs will have a very competitive character and will want to win and be the best. And I think that is something 
striving for winning and being the best gives you a pretty good chance of winning and being the best. And when the goalposts are continually being moved further and further into the you know, distance or you know, you're needing to achieve more to win and to be the best, I think that there's no greater driver. And I think that probably counts for a lot as well. And I think it's that effect that's probably happening in sports a lot as well. But I think, yeah, it's super interesting to um, unpick what, what is making the world progress. Yeah, I think you're right, really, in just the, the human mentality of what is possible and now I want to beat it. You know, that's what it comes down to ultimately. Yeah. But there are advances in, in, obviously, in the sport world, it's in sports science, nutrition, things. In the tech world, it's probably yeah, access to information, knowledge, capital. Yeah. So the bar, the, I think the bar in every industry moves slightly higher. Over yeah. Time. And um, no, for sure. Every now and then there's probably a mini correction. And so, you know, you need everyone else to catch up a bit. But I think um, on the whole, that's just how we progress as a sort of species. Yeah. So I think it follows on quite interestingly from from this conversation. And actually, you just, you just basically brought it up. But how people at the top of their game, no matter what sector they're in, whether they're musicians, whether they're artists, whether they're entrepreneurs, VCs, whoever they are, I think people at the top of their game so often share a lot of characteristics. And what made me think of that was watching a BBC documentary on Coldplay from Chris Martin. I'm not a massive diehard Coldplay fan. They've got some good songs. But watching this documentary, which mainly follows Chris Martin, I was watching it just being like, he would be the perfect entrepreneur to back. Um, he shares so many characteristics that we look for in entrepreneurs. You know, hustle. He's, he's someone who can... Um, speak to an amazing vision and completely entrance people around him and sweep them up into his vision as well, um, which, which is what he did. He, he, you know, there were clips of videos kind of on camcorders from whenever it was a long time ago of him as a kind of 18-year-old, 20-year-old. And you could just sense in him the complete fire and the burning desire to build something absolutely enormous. And, and he built Coldplay. Um, and I think that that kind of passion, drive and ability to pull people into your dream is something that we totally look for in founders. And I'm sure it's the same in loads of other sectors, but, you know, like sport, for example, um, which is why I guess you, you do often see um, people kind of switching around. And I think great pro sports people do often make really good founders and you do see it. Yeah. Yeah, there's two bits of that Coldplay documentary that kind of stand out. The first is when he says... You know, we'll be headlining Glastonbury next year, yeah. or whatever, and then he literally is. <laughs> and the second bit is when he just he he probably hasn't achieved this, but he says, "My goal is just that if someone says Chris, they just think Chris Martin." <laughs> it's like it's quite difficult because there's a lot of people called Chris. Yeah, but that's my goal. Like, if Adele <laughs> can be Adele, why can't I just be Chris? And it's like Anne's testament to like the level of ambition. Yes, but how much he wants to be ingrained in people's like psyche and um and the culture and everything and i just think that's a really amazing moment which he probably will never achieve but it just stands to like the the passion and vision that he's got and so yeah yeah those are sort of people you know that kind of attitude is what you want to be investing in really because definitely that's where your 100 x's come from because yeah it's no longer even good enough to be 10x, really. You have to be 100x now. So then moving back to the sort of tech world, we're recording this on a day where 
Square have announced a $29 billion acquisition of Australian fintech Afterpay, which is a buy now, pay later company. Bear in mind that their total market cap is about $117 billion. It's a pretty chunky acquisition. What are your thoughts, firstly, about buy now, pay later and the kind of moral, ethical criticism that it's getting? And secondly, like, what do you think this kind of means for the space generally? No, interesting. I, I am um, probably not in a position to have strong views. I think the, the problem with having a view at this stage is that we haven't kind of been through the cycle. So lots of stuff gets washed out in a recession or whatever. And I know we had Corona, but it was quite an unusual beast that in the amount of government support that we had. But if, um, if we went through a kind of credit crunch type recession like 08, then I don't know how the people who've taken out buy, buy now, pay later debt would fare. Um, and, and it kind of takes that to have a really strong view on it at the moment, because, you know, if, if it turns out that it's really well managed and the people who are taking out these, we'll call them loans because it basically is debt. Um, if we find out that these people can service the debt, even when kind of shit hits the fan, then we've got a really good thing. We've got people taking out less sort of credit card loans, I suppose, is what they're trying to um, solve. But I think, you know, I, I have my doubts and ultimately people who maybe can't really afford stuff are able to get their hands on stuff that they can't really afford. Um, and that's fundamentally a problem and it doesn't take a genius to realize that. So yeah, I mean, my suspicion is that while the economy is great and everyone's fine and when the economy is not great, the government's propping it up, um, perhaps we're, perhaps we're fine. Um, but I'd be intrigued to see what happens um, in a real, in a real downturn. Yeah, I think it's just kind of a regulatory thing where it's just not regulated in the same way as credit cards at the moment. And it needs to move in that way. There's a couple of companies in the UK that are regulated as credit businesses that do buy now, pay later. And I think that's a much more viable model in the long run. But I think it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot to play out. What I think the acquisition signals is that there are a few companies trying to be like the fintech winner takes all or the fintech super app or super company. And obviously Revolut in the UK just recently been valued at 33 billion which is pretty amazing. Like if you think Square could have almost bought Revolut for what they bought Afterpay for, but they're doing everything from FX to trading to crypto to lending and everything in between. Mm -hmm. Um, But Square started out with kind of SME payments and Afterpay have got 16 million customers. So it's not even really about the buy now, pay later bit. It's about integrating those customers into the square stack where you can offer them anything fintech and buy now pay later is a small part of that and it's all about getting as many users as possible and the highest annual revenue per user or ARPU and that's what everyone's going after so we're just going to see so much M&A activity in the space I think this is just a signal of that like Revolut are going to go public in the next three years and they're going to go buying more and more and more because it will give them more distribution, integrate more people into their app, and then they can upsell all of the different products they provide. I think TransferWise will start acquiring companies now that they've gone public and it's gone quite well. So they've got quite a lot of liquidity and market cap to play with. You know, how many companies are they going to buy between the 50 to 250 million pound range 
that they can just buy with stock basically now. Yeah. So it's it's just I think it's a signal of just like, there's so much more opportunity within the space. We're just scratching the surface. And if early startups are thinking, what should my strategy be? I think the strategy should be just go really deep on a vertical, get as many customers on that vertical. Don't worry about trying to be the super app and then get acquired for potentially 29 billion by a public fintech because that's what Afterpay have done. And I think that is a really interesting model. I think that's quite exciting for investors as well because at the moment, the criticism is, well, why can't Revolut do this? Or why can't Klarna do this or Stripe do this or whatever? Well, they can, but they just want more users and more ARPU. So if you can help them get one of those and integrate it into their stack, you're in a your like acquisition gold. So I think it's just a kind of positive signal, particularly probably for the UK, which has got probably a broader range of fintechs and what people are trying to solve. And um, there's a lot of talent here working on new ideas and there's a lot of funding in the early stages for fintech as well. So I'm, I'm think it's a really positive signal for fintech. I don't know what it means for buy now, pay later in the long run. And they'll probably try and move a lot of those customers beyond buy now, pay later and upsell them across other products. Super interesting take on it, actually. I, um, and what I was thinking as you were talking about that is just about becoming full stack as a fintech provider and re- replacing banks because, um, I don't know, when Monzo and Revolut came along, I think it was easy to think, oh, these guys, from an outsider's perspective, you know, I wasn't even in VC there. Um, hadn't done much research and you kind of think, oh, okay, well, Monza's just going to completely disrupt Barclays. It's a way better product. Banks are screwed. But then you realize, and it is that revenue per customer thing, the banks are in such a strong position because they're a full stack provider. Like They're the front end to your bank account. You can look at your statement, your spending, your transactions, all of that. But then they're, they're making the money from your deposit. They're putting your deposit to work. They're not charging a tiddly couple of months, pounds a month, fee um and that's what makes the banks traditionally so big and so i think yeah it'll be interesting to see how the startups how the fintechs go about it is it through acquiring different fintechs other fintechs or is it um by integrating kind of the more traditional parts of the stack and will monzo realize or find out that they have to um they have to do something with customer loans in order to create a really viable business or at least to make an even more exciting um, business, you know, in terms of valuation things. Um, so I think, you know, it would be, be really interesting if Monzo or if Revolut or any of the other fintech companies went full stack and you could in the kind of, you know, create a kind of super app so that you could be the customer of one of these companies, lovely user experience, but you could use it for everything and you could get your mortgage there and you can get your car loan there. And it's sort of almost the consolidation of fintech which will be exciting to see how it plays out. It, as you said, it sounds like it is starting to happen. It is. But the challenge to that is that if you have Revolut, it does so much, it's almost boggling. And I mean, it's very well designed, don't get me wrong, but like, it's quite nice just to have an app that does one thing and it does it really well. And yeah. so there will be also companies that maintain their kind of uniqueness within their vertical. But yeah, I think HSBC today announced a doubling of profit in the first half of the year compared to last year. They made pre-tax profits of 7.8 billion pounds. I mean, 
these are monsters. They're, they're not going, you know, they're making profit still. It's not like they're dying. It's not like the newspapers who got done by Facebook and Google and advertising dollars just moved away and they didn't have a response to it. It is, you know, these are big institutions, wow. they're deep pockets and 7.8 billion of pre-tax profit in half a year. They can go and buy a lot of new tech and new yeah. customer angles and go-to-market strategies and everything through acquisition as well. So yeah. not that they're necessarily going to go down that route, but there's there's still a long way to go, right? Yeah. So what's going on in the sort of B2B space at the moment? What what things are you guys looking for or looking at that you can maybe share a bit on at the moment? Yeah, we're a generalist fund at episode one, so we see everything and it's... Um... It's difficult to immediately off the top of my head think of trends, although I'm sure they do exist. We're, we're seeing a lot around data that I'm excited about how we as the world, and actually we've talked about this before, but how we make better use of data, collect it more systematically, organize it better, gain insight, useful insight from it more effectively. And so I think that's a super interesting space. But I think fundamentally, the stuff that we're seeing in episode one is really technical stuff. There's a lot of things that unless you work in the industry in VC or for one of these companies, it's pretty hard to understand exactly what they're doing. It's quite esoteric stuff. Um, and that's kind of why the B2B world is not amazing dinner party conversation um, because it's you know often not stuff that the person sat next to you has um, come across and, and understands easily. It's often chipping away at a really technical part of a huge industry. So you know if I look, think about most of our portfolio, it's people tackling very esoteric problems but that actually are huge and for the people in the industry they recognize them and, and see that it's going to make such a huge impact on their lives but they're, they're not immediately obvious yeah i mean I, we are running an angel network we naturally skew slightly towards consumer tech whether it's across di different sectors but slightly more b2c than b2b just because it resonates if you can say well actually here's the app go and download it see what you think and then there's an opportunity to invest in this thing it's it's just getting started that is much easier to get buy-in across a broader range of angels than the b2b stuff which we have to be a bit more targeted with who we send it to we have to kind of well this person really gets sass so we're going to send it to them or this person works within e-commerce so they're going to understand the challenge of what this company is fixing or you know we've had some deep tech in banking and the only people that invested are bankers, like genuinely, like not even like new wave fintech founders. They just didn't even like get it, didn't care, didn't respond, didn't want to care. So it's a it's an interesting challenge. But actually, VCs like B two B. There's something a little bit more defensible and recurring and long term. Do you know what I mean? Fundamentally, fewer people get. B2B businesses. So fundamentally, fewer people are going to be setting them up. So there's less competition. Usually people, yeah, it's easier to build defensibility through tech or through a network effect or whatever else. Plus just contract values are, are big and deals are sticky. The software, the platforms, they're all sticky. So it is, in some ways, it is easier to predict the success of a B2B business. And I think that I think that probably is true. I mean, the, the massive businesses that we know are often consumer tech, you know, Apple, Facebook, consumer, although quite a lot of these make money from business, but, and Snapchat and things like that. But actually there are so many more billion pound 
B2B businesses than there are B2C ones because there's just so much money. Businesses have so much money to spend on software and improving their systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting roundup of what's been going on at Riding Unicorns for the last month. And obviously Hector and I have gone deep on a couple of topics there. But yeah, it's been a good month. We've got some great guests coming up. We've got Simon Franks, former founder of Love Film and now partner at Redbus. We've got Sitar, the managing partner at Connect Ventures. We've got Amy Lewins from Sifted. So we've got some great guests coming up in August. So please do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and like and share. And if you're not already subscribed, subscribe to our Substack so you get all episodes direct to your inbox every Wednesday.